Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. So one thing I know to be true about all of us, no matter where you're from, no matter what you do, no matter what your your culture might be, something that's true about all of us is none of us leave home in the morning without getting dressed. Case in point right here. I mean, I guarantee we all do this. Now, you know, shelter in place may have thrown this off a little bit. You know, maybe you're not quite dressing like you used to do, and maybe your choices of what you do are a little bit different. But but no one leaves home in the morning without putting something on. And, you know, some people put more thought in it than other people do. And for some people, it's, it's more about fashion. For others, it's more about function. It's more about something I want to communicate to others. You, you might remember former President Barack Obama when he would speak to a working class crowd. He would always have a jacket off and he would always have his sleeves rolled up because he was trying to communicate something through his attire to that group of people. He was trying to communicate like, hey, I am working hard just like you are working hard. Sometimes we become known because of what we wear. We become known for a certain attire that we always have on. I I think of Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs became known for what he would wear every day, this this mock black turtleneck and and blue jeans and the key that tied it all together, New Balance tennis shoes. They had to be New Balance tennis shoes, but but that was his thing. Every day he would wear it. And I gotta be honest with you, me personally, I love the simplicity of that because I don't have to think about it, just grab the same, but he became known for what he wore. Now, you know, what we wear communicates things about us. What we wear is is telling a story about us. And maybe that story is attitude. Maybe that story is beliefs. Maybe that story is preferences or prejudices. Maybe that story is is a brand loyalty that we have. Maybe that story is a self-image we possess or possibly even a, a lack thereof. But how we dress, what we wear is telling a story about us. Now, Paul, who we've been walking through this letter to the the Colossian Christians with, Paul is going to use this imagery. Paul is going to use this idea of of what we wear, our attire as Christ followers. And and what he's just talked about last week, what we saw was things that we need to put off, things that we need to to rid of ourselves of. And now what he's going to say is, now this is the stuff we need to put on. If we're getting rid of something, this is what we're adding to as Christ followers. This is what we're putting on. Because you see, the the transformation of who we were to who we are in Christ, it was never meant to just be a you thing. This transformation was was intended to, to play itself out in our relationship with others. The transformation that begins in me begins to then influence and impact those around me. It completes the transformation that we're in. And so Paul is going to use this imagery 
of attire, of our dress. And, and here's what he says. Paul begins with the attitudes of our desires. He says in Colossians, we're going to be in chapter 3, starting in verse 12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. As positive for saying, you know, as, as God's people who are holy, the idea of holy is you've been set apart. There's something different about you now. Like you've been set apart from self-centered living and, and you're set apart to Christ-centered living now. Like you've been changed. You are different and you are dearly loved. It's this idea of this enduring, permanent, unending love of God for us. Dearly loved. Now hold there just a second because some of us, you may be struggling with that concept of being loved by God. You don't feel loved by God. You don't feel maybe worthy to be loved by God. And I want you just for a moment to just sit with that phrase and let it, let it comfort, let it consume you. You are dearly loved by God. And don't blow that off. Don't, don't discount that. Don't start, you know, your list of reasons why, well, I don't deserve God's love because of this, or I haven't earned God's love because of that. Don't do that. God says, you are dearly loved. Soak in that. Let, let that consume you. Accept it. As Christ's follower, we're set apart for him. We are dearly loved by him. And Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Clothe yourself. Some translations may, may say, put on. It's this idea of we're getting dressed before leaving the house. We are putting on these, these attitudes before we go out and encounter others. And he lists off five attitudes that are, that are to be identifiers of Christ in us in our relationships with others. And, and notice what we, what we looked at previous to this, what we looked at last week in the, the, the die-tos, that list that Paul gave us of the die-tos, those were all self-serving attitudes. And what he's about to give us now, what he, what he just listed off, these are self-sacrificing attitudes that are now to be those identifiers of our lives in Christ. And so the first one he says is, is compassion. It's, compassion is this, this feeling of deep mercy, this, this down deep inside of your heart, this, this mercy towards the condition, the, 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 what others are living through, what they're going through in life, what they're enduring. The language implies almost a feeling down in, down in the bowels, you see, ancients used to believe like that's where emotions came from, that deep inside of you and inside of your bowels. And, you know, we kind of hit on that a little bit sometimes when we say, man, I just have this feeling down, down in my, my gut. But literally the word compassion means to bear with or to suffer with. You see, human nature is to want to remove itself from suffering, to, to want to avoid suffering, suffering, to maybe look at it from a safe distance, but man, engage with it? No, why would I want to do that? And yet compassion does the opposite. Compassion engages with suffering and with the needs of others. And we see this in the life of Jesus. There's two stories in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8 where he's feeding the multitudes. And what's so great about these, these stories is as Jesus is looking at these people and he's recognizing there's a need here. Like, 
They're hungry. This has been a long day. They've got nothing. And, and Jesus, we're told, was moved by compassion because of their need and ended up doing this miraculous feeding of thousands of people because he was moved by compassion. You see, compassion is, is demonstrated by stepping into the life of another and walking alongside of them, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when it's inconvenient. It's compassion. And then he says kindness. Kindness is like action put, it's compassion put into action is the idea behind it. The, the German philosopher Nietzsche, he hated Christianity because of its encouragement towards kindness, to acting with kindness. And, and he rejected this biblical concept because of this. He said it drained strong people by making them kind, driving them to waste their energies on lepers and cripples and oppressed people. He didn't like the fact that kindness responds to the need of others. It rises out of this, this sense of sympathy, like I have to do something and I'm going to do something. Kindness reaches out to others. And it can take a lot of different forms. Kindness can be just an encouraging word, a kind word to somebody. Kindness can be like lending a helping hand to that, that neighbor who's not able to get out right now and, and maybe go get the stuff that they need out of fear. Like, hey, I'm here. What do you need? I'm here to engage with you. Kindness is maybe paying it backward at the grocery store when you see, you know, this family and, and it's like, man, I see this like, hey, I'm taking care of their groceries. It's on me. I just, it's kindness. It's demonstrated in kindness works of compassion to other people. The next one he names, he, he says humility. Humility is to be a mark, an identifier of a Christ follower. You know, Muhammad Ali, he once said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Okay, see, there's a difference between confidence and arrogance. There's a, there's a difference between, you know, humility and pride. Humility is the opposite of pride. And what's interesting about when Paul throws out humility is neither the Romans, at the time he's writing this, neither the Romans or the Greeks, they had no word for humility. They didn't have this concept of humility. It was so foreign to their way of thinking, in fact, that, that at the beginning of the church, for the first few centuries of the church, when they would refer to the concept of humility that these Christ followers would live out, it was always in a derogatory way. It was always used negatively because they believed it was a weakness, and yet, Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, one of his first disciples, Peter, a man who, man, he wrestled with pride in his life. And, and we see that in the story of Peter. Peter, at one point, writes to us, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Peter's saying, like, hey, I, I've lived this, I've experienced this in my own life, in my battle with pride. God is not in favor of the prideful person but he shows grace to the humble person. You know, how, how do we treat those we encounter throughout our day? How do we treat the, you know, the meal servers or, or you know, the baristas or your employees or, or your neighbors or maybe those beneath you socially or, or beneath you financially or, or beneath you professionally? How are we acting towards them, pridefully, arrogantly, or in humility? Because humility is not necessarily, you know, lowering yourself or putting yourself down 
Humility is lifting others up and putting them before ourselves. Then he talks about gentleness. Other translations may say meekness. And meekness is that kind of an interesting word and kind of like a word because you think of meekness and you think, well, that's like, that's weakness. But gentleness or, or meekness, this idea is actually, it's a controlled strength. It's like, no, I have the power to respond. I have the power to react to what's going on, but, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let my emotions drive my reactions. I'm going to let gentleness drive my reactions to others. Aristotle defined gentleness like this. Aristotle says it's the balance between being too angry and never being angry at all. It's this idea of anger being so controlled that we're always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Where, where we can respond with gentleness to, to maybe somebody treating us a certain way or responding to us a certain way or acting towards us a certain way. And we can respond with gentleness and not seeking revenge, but we can also respond when the situation calls for it with a sense of righteous anger, like this is an injustice, this is not right, I need to engage in this. It's gentleness, it's meekness. And the last one he says is, is patience, a long temper, long suffering. It's, it's self-restraint. It's this idea that, uh, uh, you know, uh, no matter what the difficulty I'm encountering with other people, I'm going to just breathe. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to let this, you know, see where God's directing me through this. I'm not just going to just immediately respond emotionally, but self-restraint. What's interesting about this word is it's commonly used in the New Testament in the context of God's attitude towards us, his patience, his long-suffering with us. And if that's the grace God shows us, Paul says that's the grace we're to show others. Now, I, I look at this list and I think, man, I personally, maybe you relate to this somehow too, I think, man, I've got some work to do with this. Like there are a few of these that aren't always necessarily reflected in the attitudes I find myself having. And you know, the last few months, there's been so much stress and, and so much anxiety that we've been living through that maybe we haven't been our best selves in attitude. But here's what I would encourage, because as I've even been reading this and sitting with this over the last week, you know, here's what we can do in this context. We can, you know, start with one. Maybe it's not all five and go, man, I got to work on all of those. Start with one and just pick one and go, okay, Lord, this is the one I need to work on. Me and you, we're going to be working on this. And help me become more like this. Help me become reflective of this attitude through my life in relation to others. Because you see, the transformation of Christ in us is a transformation of our attitude and responses to others. And that difference is then also reflected in our actions, the actions of our attires to other. Paul says this, and he's going to kind of get in our personal space right here. He says, bear with one another. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In essence, Paul is saying this, hey, there's going to be difficult, challenging people in life. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it, Paul. Got that one. Don't like look or point at anybody around you, but there's going to be difficult, challenging people in life. You need to forgive them. Wait, hold on, Paul, kind of lost me there for a second. Yeah, those difficult, challenging people in life, 
the ones you need to forgive are the ones that you have grievances against, the ones that you're holding grudges against, the ones who have wronged you. Now, at this point, some of us can be pushing back a little bit and going, but whoa, hold on, hold on here. He obviously doesn't know what this person has done to me. He doesn't know what I have gone through. He doesn't know what has been done to me. And he's telling me like, yeah, that person who's wronged you, that person you have agreed with, you just need to forgive them. Paul says, yeah, that person who you're holding the grudge against, that person who has wronged you, that, that person that you have that, that feeling towards, you need to forgive them just as Christ has forgiven you. C.S. Lewis uh, said once, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. You see, it can be easy to say we can forgive. It can be easy to say like, oh, I have forgiven that person with you. The problem is sometimes we can't forget. The problem is that we hold on to wrongs that have been done to us. We struggle day after day to, to put the trauma behind us, but it, it lingers in our minds. It, it lingers in our hearts. It lingers in our spirits, and we can't seem to forget, or sometimes we don't want to forget. And forgiveness can be one of the most challenging, one of the, the, the hardest, most difficult, impossible places to bring ourselves to because the hurts go deep. The, the pain doesn't diminish over time. The, the betrayal experienced be, by those who were supposed to be protecting you, the, the loss of what never can be replaced, it creates this, this prison of resentment and, and anger and rage and hurt feelings and, and suffering that keeps us locked in unforgiveness. And I'm not the per first person to struggle with this. I feel this in my life. You're not the first person to struggle with this. Peter once asked Jesus, he said, hey, Jesus, um, in Matthew chapter 18, he says, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? Up to seven? You see, the, the rabbis, the religious leaders at this time, they would teach three. You need to forgive three times. Past that, pff, it's, you know, bets are off. Like, but three, three is good. And maybe Peter's coming thinking like, hey, I'm going to look good before Jesus. I'm asking for seven. Maybe he's thinking, hey, there has to be a limit to forgiveness. There has to be a point where it's like, okay, they've now reached unforgivableness. But he says, how many times? Seven. And Jesus answers him, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, 70 times 7, it's not meant to be literal. It's not meant to be taking like, okay, I've counted up to 400. That's a whole lot of times. It's hyperbole. Basically, what Jesus is saying is we're to show others forgiveness, and there is no limit on that forgiveness. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Now, why? Why is this so important? Here's why. Because forgiveness frees my future from my past. Forgiveness frees my future from my past. You see, forgiveness is more about me. Forgiveness is more about us than it is about the person we are forgiving. And forgiveness frees us to move into our future rather than being anchored into the pain, anchored into the experience, anchored into what has been done to us in the past. 
And forgiveness doesn't mean we're, we're whitewashing the past. It, it doesn't mean we're, you know, we have to expose ourselves to unsafe people. Forgiveness doesn't mean that, you know, the person who, who has wronged you needs to remain in your life. It doesn't mean what happened to you was okay by any means. Forgiveness is not about fairness. Well, it's not fair. Forgiveness is about letting go. Letting go of the offense we've held on to. Letting go of the wrong that's been done to us. Letting go of the debt that we're owed. Letting go of, of the resentment that we feel inside of us. The wounds that we wear. Maybe the identity that we have created for ourselves. Because forgiveness frees my future from my past. And you see, forgiveness is to release the obligation that we feel the person owes us. Here's, here's a little forgiveness self-assessment because I kind of took myself through this and the results showed me I got a little work I need to do in, in some areas of my life and with certain people in my life. But here's a little forgiveness self-assessment, okay? I want you to do this with me. Think of a person in your life, past or present, who has hurt you, words or actions, someone who has sinned, against you. Now, when you think of that person, are you still angry? Are you still resentful towards them? Do you have this subtle desire in, inside of you for that person to pay for what they did to you? Do you have this, this secret longing inside of you for, for revenge, which sounds something often like this, I wouldn't mind if blank happened to them. Do you find yourself telling or retelling others how that person has hurt you? You know, if you have any yeses in any of those, there's still some unforgiveness inside. And we need to, to recognize that and be honest about that and begin to work towards letting go and forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. You see, it takes strength to forgive. Forgiveness is not weakness, and that idea is, is so false because forgiveness is powerful, and forgiveness is more powerful than what was done to you. Paul, echoing his own words that he says here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul continues on. Verse 14, he says, and over all of these virtues, everything he's just talked about, these, these attitudes, the action, he adds one more action. He says, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Over, over all of these, some translations say, above all of these, put on love. Listen to how the message translation puts this, this these three verses in context, because I think this is beautiful. The message says this, so chosen by God to this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline, be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense, forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you, and regardless 
of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. You see, this is the, the inescapable quality of a Christ follower, to love. And, and you know, if you think it's, it's a love, uh, the, kind of this warm, fuzzy feeling that means, you know, like always being nice and you're like, okay, and you're kind of missing the whole biblical meaning of what it is to love because the word for love here, it's agape. It's more a doing than it is a feeling. Agape love is, is a response. Agape love is an engagement. Agape love is not just knowing I'm loved by God and that's good enough for me. Agape is showing that love of God to others. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that says, I will love you because. It's not a love that says, I will love you if, or I will love you when, it's a love that says, I will love you because, because you are worth it to God, and therefore you are worth it to me. Paul says, put on love above all of these. It ties them all together. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's an action that identifies us is a Christ follower, to love. There's 55 commandments in the New Testament alone about loving others because it's a demonstration of Christ in us living through us, the identifier of who we are. So ask yourself this, looking at what Paul just said, these attitudes and these, these actions to demonstrate Christ, to identify us as a Christ follower, ask yourself this, Who's the who I'm to demonstrate Christ to? I know, it's very Dr. Seussie-ish, right? Who's the who I'm to demonstrate Christ to? Make it personal. Put a face on it. Who's the person, who's the who I'm to show compassion towards, kindness towards, humility, gentleness, patience? Who's the who I'm to bear with that challenging person. Who's the who I'm to forgive? And that who may even be you in that one. Who's the who I'm to demonstrate the love of Christ to? Because these are the identifiers and all that we've put off, these are the identifiers that we now put on. And as we are transformed by Christ internally, he transforms us externally in our relationships with others. And what better time to live this out than right now to those around you, those in your circle of influence, those in your circle of impact. Man, let's, let's not leave home without the attire of Christ-centered attitudes and actions reflecting his life through us. Let's pray. Lord, our, our, our desire is to be known by these attitudes, to be known by these actions, to be known that, man, Scott, man, my neighbors, man, the, that person I work with, man, these, that's a Jesus follower. Look at the way they act. Look at how they treat other people. We want to be known because we want to make a difference 
in the lives of others, just as you have made a difference in our life. So Lord, guide us there. Help us get there. Help us to, to lay aside those things or, or maybe those die-tos that we're wrestling with so that we can put these attributes, these attitudes, these actions in our life to live Christ-centered lives that honor you and speak of you. In your name we pray. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.